Welcome back, everyone. This is Matt Cooley, host of Upside Downside, where our panel explores the value creation angle of current news stories and how the actions we take affect profits and cash flow. Occasionally, we also delve into our own personal psychoses, but we do try to keep that to a minimum. By day, I'm the head of finance for Ericsson's global network platform API business and a self-professed nerd for value creation and how it impacts companies and everyday people. Joining me are distinguished panelists, Dana Price and Sami Akbe. Dana is CFO at Area 9 Lyceum Group and never lets her burn rate get out of control. She also breaks technology, like last week when her neighbor saw Dana back the car over an old Commodore 64. Welcome, Dana. Thanks. It's great to be here, Matt. <laughs> Sami Akbe is a technology executive and founder and is one of those people who knows how to shove data into the black box and make something useful come out the other side. He painted the words Mr. Data on the back of his shoes so people know that he's serious. Welcome, Sami. Well, thank you for having me here, Matt. Do you have those shoes on? No, I'm wearing green shoes today. <laughs> okay. Today, we're going full wonky and discussing variable pricing models and conversational AI technology. I'm sitting here thinking, does this mean I have to haggle with chatbots uh, for Sixers tickets? But we'll get into that later. So let's take variable pricing first. For quite some time now, companies have been offering variable or dynamic prices for airline seats, hotel rooms, rideshare, sporting events, concerts, and so on to consumers. And in the world of wholesale and commodities, it's been going on forever, right? What's evolving is the use of data analytics to create algorithms that optimize for a lot more than just price times quantity. Factors like your personal demographics, your physical location, the operating system on your smartphone, how many times you searched a keyword string in the last week even, all that stuff's being used to tune and present sort of hyper-optimized prices to buyers. What does this do to value creation and are there longer term risks we should be uh, thinking about? I mean, there, there's a lot here. Dana, you're a serious sports fan and a CFO. What are your observations about the upsides and downsides of variable pricing? Sure. So from, from an upside perspective, I think, you know, there's a couple things. There's potentially more uh, predictable revenue streams. Uh, clearly, the ability to perhaps make more money, and I'm thinking about it from the company's perspective, obviously, and also better better staffing, better way to serve the support services for that model. On the flip side of that, from a consumer's perspective, I know that I am absolutely going to pay more <laughs> for this muffler, George, uh, at, <laughs> at a certain point in time if I go to, whether it be an event or um, you know, whatever the related item is in the, you know, off hours. And there's two specific things where I can actually show you there are folks at the uh, opposite ends. So I was at a conference once where the data guy from the Boston Red Sox um, was talking about how they implemented uh, their, their, their pricing model. And this is several years ago. <clears throat> and they basically just churned all the data and looked at specific day of the week time of the season, time of the game, and then obviously location of the seat in the ballpark to drive the pricing, i.e. when the Yankees play the Red Sox on a Saturday night, it's going to cost you a fortune. Um, but on the flip side of that, they were also able to determine their staffing le levels a little bit better. 
um, understand the predictability of what the food and beverage might run their food and beverage revenue so that they could staff the, you know, the counters and stuff on certain games. And he also did make a note, and I presume he was referring to when the Yankees play the Red Sox, the need for security and or um, safety staff. Apparently, hmm. he has data on that where the the and this is probably a direct correlation between an increase in the food and beverage relates to an increase in the need for security. <laughs> so beer, beer consumption directly correlates to the need for security, something like that. Yes, and apparently there's very specific places in the park where uh, there's more security risk. So I, I think from a uh, you know security perspective, that's actually pretty interesting. On the absolutely. complete opposite end of the spectrum is Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta. And this was pre-COVID. I can't speak to it today, but I presume it's similar. Their data person basically ran all the data from all the events and determined that if they cut their prices by 50%, they would actually get more money per customer. And what, what that means is I could speak to a, a football event. So if you go to see the Atlanta Falcons play, um, there were five of us for lunch and it cost only $32. The tickets I believe were something like $35. Now the Atlanta Falcons weren't doing very well that year, but that <laughs> didn't seem to have an impact. The fact of the matter is that I did go back and I did get the extra drink or I did go buy a hat or I did buy more because I'm like, oh, it's only $20. So I'll just go buy something else. So you have complete opposite ends of the spectrum from a variable pricing perspective that is going to drive consumers in various ways, depending upon, you know, how they feel, whether they're being taken advantage of or, oh, this is a bargain. Wow. That, that, that's fascinating. And to back it up with data like that, um, I wonder if any other teams have, have taken similar approaches. I have to presume they, they are. Um, you know, I am in the middle of an NFL stadium tour and, you know, the obvious is clear. I am not going to go see the um, Kansas City Chiefs play next year because, I, number one, I have already seen them play and they're awesome, um, but it's going to cost <laughs> me more. And as I haven't been to Philly, I mean, I live two hours from there, but I haven't been to Philly yet. And I'm certainly not going to go next year because the Eagles were in the Super Bowl. So that's going to cost me more. Whereas if I go up to um, Gillette Stadium um, where the Patriots play, it's going to cost me so much less than it would have a few years ago. <laughs> I love how you've broken this down to your your personal uh, you know entertainment yeah. matrix here. I, I'm sorry you had to bring up the loss uh, of the Eagles though. That's still sorry. Still yes, benches. yeah. I apologize. <laughs> Sami, weigh in here. What uh, what do you think of all this? So, <clears throat> I think that coming up with let's just cut the prices so that more people attend the events and we're going to in aggregate get more value is not a sustainable long-term strategy i think that it's uh being lazy when everybody is trying to move to personalized pricing and personalized experiences um it works i think in the short term but when you look at it in a longer horizon over time I'm not I'm not too keen on that because first of all, you know, differentiated products versus commodity products. I think an event is a differentiated offering. Uh, where you sit at that event, what kind of an experience you have 
whether or not your stadium is like the Niners stadium with super high technology versus, you know, something more um, kind of rudimentary. These are all things that people are willing to pay or pay more or pay less for. And then the other thing is uh, certain things are perishable goods and their value is really uh, kind of something that changes over time, right? Uh, an airplane seat is perishable. A uh, tomato at the supermarket is perishable. You know, a seat at an NFL stadium is perishable. Mm -hmm. uh, and is there, the, the value curve for those events change uh, over time as you get closer to the event uh if there's scarcity around it the value keeps going up but the moment that the event starts 15 minutes in it suddenly has a big drop and it just vanishes right the moment that the uh airplane door is closed that empty seat is worth nothing but uh 15 20 minutes earlier it could have been worth two thousand dollars so um ultimately price is a value that you capture in the eyes of the consumer and uh that's why i think uh the you know variable pricing approaches are here to stay and you know in, in economics we have the whole kind of consumer surplus versus producer surplus thing where something that's worth a hundred dollars to me i will buy at 50 is uh the consumer surplus i got a great deal or something worth uh the, the opposite is the you know producer surplus where it's in the seller's eyes it might be worth something like 50 bucks, but people are going to pay a hundred. So you want to get to the most optimal <laughs> point where the value matches, uh, you know, and the consumer surplus and the producer surplus are maximized uh, to the fullest. So the data science behind variable pricing is huge. People are investing in, in enormous amounts of money in trying to make it optimal. I actually think that it creates efficiencies because everybody's watching each other and as long as something is readily available and being produced uh in ample fashion uh that pushes the prices down if there is a shortage of something it has the opposite effect then it starts pushing the prices up so i guess the upside is for anything that's abundantly available uh it reduces the margins uh for the producers and it makes it most optimal pricing and the moment that you have the other trend where the uh, demand starts to exceed supply, uh, the prices start to escalate faster than they should. Mm -hmm. But I believe that it's it's something uh, that's going to be here to stay for uh, for quite some time. Yeah, it, it, interesting. As a finance business partner, I, I want to obviously delight my customers and maximize profits and cash flow. As a consumer, though, you know, you, you bring up value curve. I want to pay for what matters most to me, but I also don't want to be the chump uh, that paid more than everyone else. And I just wonder, you know, is there a risk here that companies could over-optimize simply because the data is available, but when consumers talk to each other and uh, they're sort of scratching their heads, why did I have to pay so much more? Um, you know, you know uh, I, that's that's a fantastic point that you're bringing up. So that's why what you need to do when you're doing these, uh, you know, dynamic pricing models is that you need to treat the group of people who belong, belong to the same cohort uh, with the same principles so so that you can maintain a sense of fairness. You know, if you and I are in the same cohort, but one of us pay a lot more than the other, 
and there isn't an explainable uh you know value like viewpoint for that then uh that loses faith in the brand and it can be more expensive than the revenue that the producer captured yeah uh, interesting and fair point so so dana when you're on your nfl stadium tour you need to keep these things in mind my friend yeah <laughs> i do <laughs> okay all right uh that that was that was interesting um, let's move on to our next topic, which is conversational artificial intelligence. You know, we're this is commonly used in apps uh, like Siri and Alexa, and we're starting to see this all over the place. Just like Darwin might have hypothesized, though, this is evolving towards generative AI that's now creating things, not just responding to simple inquiries from users. A company called OpenAI released ChatGPT last fall, and Google, Meta, and everyone else are building their own versions that generate unique content and theoretically open up lots of new use cases for society. Well, far from perfect, ChatGPT has already entered the classroom. It's building restaurant menus. It's writing legal letters. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, possibly infringing on copyright and patents as well. So there's a lot to unpack from a value creation perspective here as well. Sami, you've been called Mr. Data. What's going on in this space? And what are the upsides and downsides on value creation that you see? So uh, I think we're at an AI inflection point where uh, these technologies that have been around for some time are becoming mainstream. And as they become mainstream and get in the hands of a lot of different people and a lot of different users, uh, we suddenly start to see uh, the good and the bad and the ugly of uh, all of this. But this is this this didn't happen overnight, right? I mean, this has been... This has been in the works. It's been uh, coming up for some time, and um, you know, essentially, large language models—they're pre-trained on massive amounts of text data, and then they're fine-tuned on specific tasks. And this is kind of reminiscent of when we had uh, the internet-enabled applications in the 1990s, where you could just like dial up and download some data points, or you know, even things like uh, you know, people handwriting things or hand typing things to starting to use a copier, which gave you a tremendous jump in productivity. So AI actually has the potential to do that if it gets integrated to uh, different things properly. So fewer people will be able to do uh, more tasks, but also certain things that we started to see as, okay, let's just like put it on a you know, spreadsheet or put it on a uh, document or create a uh, presentation for it, most of those tasks can start getting automated. So, for example, if you deploy a large, large language model within your organization, you can say, hey, uh, based on all the information that we have in our organization, uh, create a report on uh, what's going to happen to such and such in the next like 30 days or make a prediction on this. So it's, you know, really cool th- stuff but it does have certain shortcomings so one uh things that you would have assigned a business analyst to do uh you know and they would go disappear for two weeks and come back with some results that could be automated and get done in like a a mere uh minutes or sometimes maybe a little bit longer than that uh on the flip side these models are super expensive and they don't have accountability. They cannot really necessarily tell you why they came up with the things that they came up with. 
and it's going to be some time before they become meaningful and uh, they become truly useful. Right now, they're still in the early uh, play stages, playful stages, but I can assure you in the next three, four, five years, it's going to be a ubiquitous part of almost everything that we do. Hmm. So that's, so that's a pretty bullish outlook then. Okay, what, Dana, what do, what do you say? So I, I'm sort of in the same boat with Sami. Um, I definitely feel from a business perspective, you know, there's there's a cost, right? A cost benefit analysis you have to do because you're you're sort of replacing either a human or tasks with a license and essentially um, a digital um, human hire. But that digital human hire may not have the level of experience or the knowledge. Like if you're running an analysis and and you need certain, what I'll call the soft criteria, you know, for ascension, you know, I've been in the education business for 10 years. So I know certain things about the industry that might move something higher or lower. A, a digital asset may actually not have the knowledge for that. So there, there could inherently be errors in whatever it is that you're trying to run. Um, I think on a, on the consumer side, you know, I, I, I would say it's absolutely more helpful. Um, however, there's, there's limitations, right? There's limitations on jargon or slang. I may use certain words in certain phrases, or they may sound different because I'm from New York versus (laughs) another region. Um, maybe English is my second language. So if you're dictating, verbally to something to do something for you it might not understand i think you know from an alexa perspective as a consumer i ask alexa a lot of questions as you could probably understand <laughs> um and alexa is probably got a hit rate of 50% with me because she often doesn't understand what i'm asking and i have to ask the question five different times or shorten the sentence or ask it a different way, or I have to sit down. And by the time I sit down and figure out how I could ask Alexa the question differently so that she could answer it, I could have just gotten on um, my my phone or iPad or laptop, Googled it and gotten the answer I needed. From a business perspective, chats, I'm finding never work. And that just, again, that could be my technology impact. But I find from a business perspective, and a lot of this has to do with banking, never answers my question. Um, I often will use chats to try to get the answer for a question, but my question is so specific to either my company or a specific transaction. It does not answer the question. And then I have to get a, try to find the phone number to call the bank. And then the longer I'm on hold for the bank, the more irritated I get because I just want an answer to my question, which should have been very simple to find. So I, 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 I have a love-hate relationship with it, but I do believe and I do agree with uh, Sammy that that this is the direction that we're going and we just need to get it trained better. Yeah, uh, I'm probably between the two of you on this. It feels like an improvement over the technologies we've already been using. Um, and it's definitely going to create opportunities to further trim costs and improve customer care. Like I think the natural language models are improving. Are they improving fast enough and working their way into the chatbots and virtual assistants? Not really, because I can't, just like you, I can't think of a, 
I can't think of a chatbot experience that has really fully answered my questions. And we use them heavily, actually, within my company. Um, you know, will lawyers stop writing letters and marketeers stop drafting their own ad copy anytime soon? I don't think so. Um, but but we will have, and I, I agree with Sami's time frame based on based on what I'm reading and, and hearing from others, um, will have new tools that will help us frame value creation as we go forward. I don't think it's happening tomorrow. That's that's my assessment. Does anybody want to uh, weigh in on that? No, I don't think it's happening tomorrow, but you know, think of uh think of the spell checker on your uh, on your uh you know edit the uh, document editor. Can do you remember the time when you actually had to uh you know use a dictionary? It's been a while. <laughs> Yeah, it's just going to be sprinkled across everything and it will complete your sentences first and it will start like, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll start writing the first sentence of a paragraph, it will finish your paragraph for you and it will make you super productive, uh, I think, over time. Yeah, and uh, you know, one more question on this. Do you think it will apply beyond roles that um, you know tend to be repetitive? Sami, you use the business analyst um, example. Thought I read something recently. You know, at some point, uh, it could be applied to strategy. So, do you need to pay for the big, expensive uh, CEO, for example? Um, you know, is it routine tasks, or could it apply to some of these larger roles as well? You know, I actually think that it's going to excel at routine tasks first. The whole kind of philosophical argument then goes back to uh, whether or not you infer based on correlations or causality, right? Mm-hmm. You know, a CEO is good because with, you know, limited imp- information or sometimes not so limited information, they make uh, a decision within a uh, time frame that's the most optimized time frame and uh it involves if this happens then this should happen type of a prediction and it's very much based on um you know kind of it's a mixture of gut feeling with data as opposed to most of these models uh at least right now they don't use gut feeling they use uh correlations and uh very clearly defined rules so I think we're some ways away before they can start making the uh, kind of CEO-like strategic decisions. They're they're good at like uh, obvious decisions. Yeah, I, I mean, as a as a finance business partner, I I feel like there's two sides to that, um, and a lot of uh, you know frontline uh, analysts, for example, make similar decisions, just perhaps at a, at a smaller level. This is interesting. So Dana and Sami, I think we should ask our, why don't we ask our holographic chatbot doppelgangers to handle the next episode? And we're going to charge them each a different host fee, right? Well, it depends upon (laughs) what day we do it and what time of the day we do it. Exactly. what the weather outside is, isn't it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So I said it was full wonky. It definitely felt like that. It was a lot of fun today. And I want to thank you both for sharing your insights. And to our listeners, there's a ton of value out there just waiting to be created. Keep up the good work and we'll see you next time. All right. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Dana. Thank you both.